whether faith can abide superstition, and where to draw the line between the two. What are you going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. This will be the first Walk the Earth that I can remember recording where I didn't have a specific church in mind, because most of the other ones have been related to questions that have come from the process of looking at different churches over the course of several months. We are now in membership uh, sessions, membership meetings with a church that we expect to join in October, and that may tilt the balance a little bit from dealing with issues related to viewing different churches to dealing with different decisions, in this case, decisions related to the process of joining a church. But there won't be any direct reference to any congregation this time. This is a much broader question, a question of what is faith, what is superstition, and where can you draw a line between the two? I want to mention it in those terms right up front, because when you go to places like Wikipedia and look up uh, the sections for these terms, faith and superstition, you find that out there there's this mentality, and I think it's become more and more prevalent in recent years, that faith and superstition are basically uh, synonyms of each other. Or there's a, a reference you can find between the two of them. It wouldn't shock me if the uh, online thesaurus connects the dots between the two. And one of them, under the Wikipedia entry for superstition, I think puts it best. It says, the word superstition is sometimes used to refer to religious practices. The example they give is voodoo. But religious practices other than the one prevailing in a given society. So in the West, Christianity is prevailing. Therefore, many other things which are not Christianity are viewed as just superstitious belief. But there's other ideas that are wrapped up in there. This notion of luck, for example. I'm going to get to that in a minute. And the one thing I'd like to say is that, yeah, it, it is true that, generally speaking, people of a faith view other faiths as being rife with superstition. But one of the things I'll talk through is how superstition is prevalent within the dominant faith of a given culture as well, that all religions have them. But I do think it's a bit of a stretch to say that these two ideas are synonymous with each other, because there are differences you can point to. In fact, there's differences I'm about to point to that help me find my way between the two. So perhaps the best thing to do is to say, well, what's the definition of superstition? And perhaps I'll go to Wikipedia for that. And what's the definition for faith? And I'm going to go a couple of places for that. So in the same Wikipedia article, superstition is the belief in supernatural causality, that one event causes another without any natural process linking the two events, such as astrology, religion, omens, witchcraft, prophecies, etc., things that contradict natural science. So there's a, a fair working definition of superstition. Looking to faith from a New Testament perspective, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1, famously says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the, uh, I suppose, the biblical definition of the word, but I choose to go in a different direction. And I've shared this previously on a couple of different inappropriate conversation shows. But from a Walk the Earth perspective, I'm probably putting this out there for the very first time. To me, faith is an intuitive knowledge of God. 
Now, there's this line between if you go back to the other definition and you're looking at this concept of saying, hey, it's it's belief that things cause other things and that there's no natural process linking that and that it seems to be um, supernatural or outside the bounds of normal science or natural science. Yes, in a way. But I think when you're talking about questions of faith, you're much closer to the discipline of philosophy than you are to the natural sciences. And in philosophy, there is a pretty well-established and well-defended notion of intuition. If only to cite Rene Descartes, this notion of I think, therefore I am. That there's a conversation that I have with myself that supersedes the absolute inability to use either observation or traditional calculations, mathematics, reason to prove that I exist. There is a baseline understanding of causality, in a way, between how I interact with myself, my perception of things, which supersedes, again, the inability to say, well, if you see, if you prove, if you look at yourself to say you can prove your own existence, it's tautological. Yourself is in the, is in the calculation. And that's true of any element of reason that you might apply as well. So you either end up stuck with the life is an illusion, and I'm going to I'm going to guess that I don't exist because I can't prove it, which in some ways is the bizarre place that Western materialism and Eastern mysticism meet each other, that until I can prove it, I'm going to assume it's an illusion. No, uh, Western Christianity takes a very different approach and has since the very beginning, and that's the notion that there is an intuitive knowledge of self based on this conversation, dialogue, relationship with self, and that there also is an intuitive relationship with God. Uh, prayer being conversation with God, the guiding of the Holy Spirit being relationship with God. And those things are a much better definition of faith than anything you're going to find on Wikipedia, for example. So I come into this church search as a very faithful person with a heightened awareness and a great sensitivity about what faith is. But I also come into it with a heightened sense of rationalism. And for some, this seems impossible. How could that be true? But it's the heart and soul of inappropriate conversations. It's what that other show that you can find at www.inappropriateconversations.org here with Walk the Earth. It's what that other show is all about. But for this one, I want to talk a little bit instead about the other concern. And so it's not about what's faith, proving faith, defending the faith. I'm assuming that a lot of people who have come to Walk the Earth are willing to grant me as people who are perhaps outside my worldview, that I'm genuine. Uh, here we are in you know, 17, 18 episodes in. Uh, surely that would have been a problem before now if it weren't true. But the other end of it is I'm also assuming I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, that this is a church search where I'm speaking as a Christian, and in some cases to other Christians, and sort of pulling back the veil of what are the things we miss when we lock ourselves either into a denomination or even worse, into a congregation and never think outside of those walls, those walls not actually being the congregation or the church in the first place. So, no, in the interest of looking around, the, the one thing that I find concerning is the role that superstition plays within Christianity. Because Christians are really quick to point a finger at some of the things which seem incredulous outside the realm of, again, Western Christianity, or perhaps even Christianity as a whole. But there is a great deal that I find suspect within Christianity. And I think it's important for faithful people who take faith seriously, as seriously as I do, to look for those distinctions. So a couple things happened when I was kind of trying to do the research for this, trying to prepare examples. Because on my own, I might be a little more provocative on the inappropriate conversations episodes, for example. 
I might just call out that the belief that the earth is X thousand of years old is superstition, not faith. That that notion takes us to places the Bible doesn't take us, doesn't tell us we have to go, and those who go there do so out of fear. And this notion that you're sort of shaking that bag of bones and saying the magic words and doing the, the right incantation and following the ritual perfectly to fight off the evil spirits, well, really, in some ways, belief that the age of the earth is the most important thing is exactly that. It's superstition. But it strikes me as being just a little bit too confrontational. So let me instead find some, some less political, I guess, ideas to talk about it. The church that we left behind had a big flap at one point in time, and I don't believe it was really over superstition, and I don't believe it was really over anything more than power, that there was a member of the church who was uh, active in the worship committee, so the committee that made decisions about things that happened each Sunday in the worship service. Did we uh, have a certain special exception to the way we collected the offering, or was, was there going to be a special extended children's moment? These kind of decisions would come through that worship committee, and one of the biggest decisions that that worship committee made was communion. Now, the church we've been attending lately does communion every Sunday. So it takes a little bit of the ceremony out of it. And, and I don't mean that as a criticism. What I mean is that if you know every Sunday you're going to be doing communion, it might be less of a big deal if there was a difference of opinion over when to do it and how to do it or whether to change it up or who's going to be praying right before the communion is served. But when you only do communion once a month, or even less often than that, it puts a lot of pressure on this notion that some people have of doing it right. Now for me, doing communion right is really simple. Just do it. Jesus didn't put a lot of, a lot of rules around it. He simply said, remember me this way. And I think that there's a lot of ways that communion can be taken that sufficiently remember Jesus of Nazareth and what he did and the fact that he is the Christ and all that other sort of stuff that's built into the Eucharist or Holy Communion. But this church really got obsessed with the method and they really got sort of stuck. And, you know, they're a United Methodist Church. So I suppose there's a joke there with the Methodist Church being obsessed with the methodology. But at one point, somebody threatened to leave the church over it. Somebody, uh, we actually had to remove a member from a committee because they were so disruptive. And it was all over this issue of of who gets to decide how we do it? Are we going to break out the Jesus crackers and kind of kind of go, you know, old school and sort of a Catholic Episcopal kind of a format? Are we going to do intention where you peel a piece off of a loaf of bread and dip it in the cup yourself? Uh, is it going to be a different kind of grape juice? Uh, is the bread, does the bread need to be truly unleavened? Should it be pita instead of the kind of bread you typically see in an American supermarket? All these sort of points of decision, relatively irrelevant points of decision, if you ask me, had become an issue over which people were going to either leave the church or stop giving to the church or threaten to call the bishop's office and have something done about that pastor who's not doing it our way. All this sort of nonsense. And at some point, that level of obsession with ritual in and of itself becomes a superstition. If someone comes along and says, well, if you take communion this way instead of that way, if you drink the wine before you eat the bread, it's not going to work anymore. Well, now you're getting closer to a concept that I might describe as Christian witchcraft than ritual. I talk about it as well with the Lord's Prayer. I will often recite the Lord's Prayer without any sort of thine or thy mention. To me, if I'm praying and I'm talking to God, it's me and you. It's your will be done, not thy will be done. Grammatically, they don't mean anything differently. And so from Jesus's perspective, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and him giving us a method of prayer, not a secret incantation, but a method of prayer, 
then it really is no big deal. But for some people, saying it with slightly different words, with more modern English terminology, talking to God like you should talk to God, like you talk to anybody else, somehow you know, violates the covenant. It breaks, it's not the magic words, so it doesn't work. And that is absolutely superstition. I went online, and of all the places that I found to get other examples of this, I found someone named Jacob Nynan, a website called cnc.org. Comfort and Counsel is pretty much the, the name or the purpose of the site. And I took a quick look through some of the About Me information, and it, it didn't strike me as being anything that I was uncomfortable with. Anymore, you go online looking for a Christian thought, you almost have to hold your breath. But the article that I got to, Faith and Superstitions, he comes to the same conclusion I do. Quoting him, uh, he says, What we may not realize is that many Christians, including the evangelical ones, have their own superstitions. And he cites a few. Using the cross as a charm. Does wearing a cross around your neck do anything, is it anything other than jewelry? And to the extent to which it's jewelry, is there a risk that that's idolatrous? Well, nowhere near as bad as the risk of presuming that because the cross is around your neck that you've got some magical protection. I had a pastor approach me once when we moved into a new home. And I think he probably was a little concerned because I work a significant distance away from where I live. And it used to be even further. And so one of our goals for moving from one house to another was finding a a layout of a home, a, a use of space that was more accommodating to teenagers that we ended up in a place where our goal was to be roughly in the same square footage. We weren't trying to necessarily move into a place that was that much bigger. The bedrooms became a little bit bigger, and when we finished the basement, that made it bigger. But initially, it was not that much bigger. It was just the idea of using the space more wisely. Again, we finished the basement to create a space for teenagers to have friends over, so that nine times out of ten, if there was going to be a sleepover, or maybe eight times out of ten, if there was going to be a sleepover, our kids' friends would be in our house more often than the other way around. And as a parent, I think that provides a, a certain amount of a benefit. It forces the issue of you meeting your children's friends, for one thing. But the pastor at this church, I think, was a little bit worried that in the course of moving from one house to another, we would move too far away from the church and end up changing the church that we were a part of as a result. And you know, we kind of willfully made a decision to move from home to home in such a way that we were still a good driving distance and could continue going to that church. And I use it as an example of faithfulness, really. We, as a congregational member, we've done things over the years to try to stay engaged with that church. And that's what made walking away from that church relatively traumatic because we had other things which could have led us to leave. And we went through a lot of effort to make sure we didn't have to. So when we chose to, it reflected a huge set of uh, just an enduring set of disappointments and a lot of unfaithfulness on the part of the people that we were interacting with. Again, the obsession over uh, the rituals and worship, uh, communion in particular, being a really good example. But that pastor suggested that if we moved into the new home, we might want to do a ceremony where he blessed all the archways and doorways in our new house. And I never took him up on it. It wouldn't have bothered me if we'd gone down that route. But at no point would I have felt like that was crucially important, because that's where Christianity, this notion of blessing a home, gets awfully close to this notion of evil spirits, you know, and, and it's not like the New Testament doesn't make reference to evil spirits, and in most cases when it does, it's talking about what we might describe today as mental illness, and there are places in the Old Testament where the priests have a direct relationship with what we might call home inspection, that uh, there's descriptive procedures for what happens if black mold gets into your home. And 
I think just as, a, as an objective authority figure, going to any outside objective source to make sure that the mold is gone is very smart. And in an era before the presence of things like Lysol disinfectant spray, abandoning a house that has been overrun by mold is very smart. But that's one thing. The notion of, of welcoming people into your home, the notion of making sure that there's nothing dangerous inside the home, physically dangerous. But when you cross the line between blessing a home ceremonially and doing so in a way to make sure nothing bad happens to people who move there, then you get awfully close to the plot of Poltergeist and pretty far away from what I would call mainstream Christianity. So you got that. Really, probably the number one piece of idolatry in Christianity, American Christianity today anyway, is the Bible. This author, Nainan, mentions the Bible as being used as a magic power or saying Bible verses or putting Bible verses on tattoos or on clothing as a form of good luck. When you start talking about it that way, you're getting into superstition. And there's other things he mentions related to prayer and, and other things. And, and the whole word of faith uh, movement, the cultic movement that calls itself word of faith, trying to turn the concept of faith into some sort of magic power. These are good examples. The one I really wanted to talk about today, though, came just recently in an online conversation with Nicole from Greetings from Nowhere. She has a website called NSV. It's her initials, but her initials spelled phonetically, so it's E-N-E-S-V-Y dot com. And her WordPress site there for September 4th had an article called Lucky Chance. And in this article, well worth reading, she's wrestling with this concept of what it means to be either blessed or lucky, or where those, where those two ideas may differ. She says uh, in her article, I think the latter may be more fair from a Christian point of view. God may know when, when a sparrow falls, but it doesn't say he chooses which sparrow will fall. If I am not blessed, if I am just lucky, some of my specialness might be taken away. But that might be a good thing. It doesn't change God's love for me if I was not specially chosen to have a privileged life. And therein is the question. So she asked online, you know, for thoughts, uh, lucky versus blessed, what are we talking about? And I really wrestled with it because I couldn't find the easy answer. And I was also doing some contemplating for this particular question on Walk the Earth, and they kind of dovetailed with each other. What it reminded me of, though, really, was a previous episode of Inappropriate Conversations. I don't mention it every episode, but both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth can be found on Stitcher. If you find the Inappropriate Conversations section for Stitcher, or for that matter on iTunes, or anywhere else you catch your podcasts, you'll find Inappropriate Conversations shows intermingled with Walk the Earth, as they are on the website at inappropriateconversations.org. A few years ago, timed specifically for December 31st, in this case, uh, released just before then in 2010, episode 41 of Inappropriate Conversations was called Gone But Not Forgotten and Yet Left Behind. And what I wanted to do in that was deal specifically with my relationship with my older sister, who died very young, of multiple forms of cancer. And in the course of sort of dealing with that loss and preparing ourselves for for what, you know, you have that up and down with cancer. You have the, the great despair at the beginning, the hope of treatment, the good news, then the, the bad news. Um, once, but once you, once you know that a cancer has moved from breast cancer to lymph nodes to liver cancer, you begin to get the idea that things are not going to go that well. During that time, I had a conversation with my sister because I had heard an interview with Stephanie Spielman, who had cancer at the same time and would a little later die from her, from her experience. But while she was doing better, she basically threw out the, the very 
common quote that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I shared that with my older sister, and her answer to me was very direct and also very faithfully sincere. It was very theologically sincere, I guess would be how I'd word it. She said, God did not give me cancer. Period. No argument, no discussion, no give and take, no debate. God did not give me cancer. Now, this wasn't some sort of failure of faith on her part. For people who love some of these old adages more than they actually love what the Bible teaches, we see that a lot. The love the sinner, hate the sin talk is a great example. People who love traditional old adages, and even if they're not true biblically, they don't seem to care. Now, my sister said that God is with her every step of the way, helping her deal with cancer. But she rejected the notion that it might be some sort of a test. That God had given her this challenge and he was going to help her pull through and it was going to strengthen her witness. No. So, from her perspective, this notion that you could describe that as a curse was unacceptable. She would have been outraged, in fact, if I listed three or four things in her life that hadn't gone well, or maybe some mistakes that she'd made, and gone so far as to say that God was probably cursing her with this horrific disease as punishment for the things she had done wrong. I realize as I say it, it's inconceivable that any loving brother could say something like that to a sister, and I didn't. I didn't get anywhere near it. That wasn't my approach. That wasn't my point. And she cut that concept off right at the switch. She basically said, what you're talking about is superstition. That's a very different thing from faith. We're human beings. We interact with our world in very specific ways. Cancer is one of the things that happens. Some of it's genetic. Some of it's environmental. Some of it is related around health. Some of it's related around changes in health. I mean, a lot of her health changes occurred after she had her first child. So... You wrap all that stuff up and you say, you know what, the one thing that is not true is that God chose to say, you've been blessed all these years with a good, stable family home life, with a great marriage, now you've got a son, it's time for me to balance the force. That's superstition. So what it led me to do was actually raise the question of, if we view the notion of God cursing people as a form of superstition... Don't we almost have to flip that coin on the other side and say, most of the time when Christians talk about blessings, they're talking about a superstition as well? The reality is, I don't view my relationship with my wife as this ledger of pros and cons where I'm keeping score and assuming that, well, hey, you know what, we had a, we had a fantastic birthday celebration a couple of weeks ago, so I'm expecting her to turn on me any minute now. And yet as little kids, I think, a lot of us did that. I was one of those little kids who would just assume that if things were going well, it was just a matter of time before I got stung by a wasp or something because you can't always get you can't always get your way. And sort of seeing maybe the entire natural world as having some sort of balance. And for me, what that led is, is an even-keeled approach, which I hope is an even-keeled approach that's apparent in these episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. Maybe less so in the former, but there's... There's moments where I could be more angry than I am, and I try not to. I try not to go to one extreme or the other. I also tend to be the kind of person where, at the the greatest party in the world, where I'm having the best time at the world, I'm not going to be dancing on the tables and screaming and shouting. I'm going to be sitting there enjoying it and literally just soaking it all in. But I think that even keeled approach came from what might be a typical childhood superstition that if something bad happens to you, it's just the consequences of bad things you've done. Now sometimes that's true. If you do things your parents told you not to do, you're probably going to get punished. And in some cases, if you do things your parents told you not to do, the natural world may 
present you with consequences because you know the notion of don't touch the hot stove or don't try to warm milk on an open fire with a glass or ceramic bowl. I mean, these are things where there really isn't anything that your parents could say otherwise that would change the natural course of science, right? So you're going to get hurt if you do things you shouldn't do, and you're perhaps going to get punished by your parents for doing things you shouldn't do. But when you extend that to blaming the weather, blaming insects, blaming an angry dog that's gotten away from its owner on some sort of cosmic plan, well, that's superstition. So as I'm here walking the earth, trying to make sure I've got a, a proper balance between this notion of what is faith and what is superstition, how to draw the line between the two, I think it comes down to answering a couple of those extra questions. Questions like, well, from a biblical perspective, uh, is this proscriptive or is it descriptive? I consider most of the Old Testament to be descriptive, not proscriptive, for example, and trying to follow things in the Old Testament like uh, rules regarding um, church attendance and menstruation or other sort of, you know, uh, you, if, if you worked in, if you tried to follow every Old Testament law and you worked in an EMS or as a pathologist, you could never go to church because you're always within seven days of having done, had some sort of contact with somebody who's dying or dead. So I, I view most of that as, as descriptive. And to the extent that something is viewed as proscriptive, regardless whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, I still try to test that against what the Holy Spirit says, and against the two primary commandments that Jesus gave us. Love God, love your neighbor. If what I'm being told I should or shouldn't do is inconsistent with the kind of love that Jesus commanded us to deliver, to follow, to display, then it's probably superstition to put that rule above the overarching guideline coming from, if you're Christian, the mouth of the Lord himself. So to me, as you wrestle with these things in terms of saying, well, you know, is, is an argument over the quote-unquote right way to do communion, is that of faith or is that of superstition? And it's most likely, I'm going to suggest, of superstition because I believe that communion can be taken in as many ways as human imagination can provide or as in many ways as circumstances can provide. In other words, if you had a real heart for the Eucharist, and you felt like it needed to be done with wine, but there was some sort of wine shortage, or you were in a dry county where you couldn't buy any or bring any, would you just skip communion for all of that two-week vacation because you couldn't get a hold of any wine? It, it can only be done with wine? That's kind of silly. In, in my mind, that's fairly ridiculous. Because we take communion today with small pieces of usually leavened bread rather than unleavened bread, or crackers, which to my mind is even further away from being bread. We also lose sight of the fact that that Last Supper was a Passover meal. There was more going on there than just bread and wine. I think for some people, they imagine that Jesus and the Twelve are just sitting around, and the only thing there are on the table are wine bottles, goblets for the wine, and loaves of bread. No, there was more to it than that. So I think it comes down to asking that next question. And unmistakably, there, there are some element of either luck or blessing or privilege in place. But it's always going to be a mistake to leverage some sort of privileged situation as being of God. Because if God didn't give my older sister cancer, then I can't believe that God has put me in a situation where I should have more rights than somebody else based on the color of their skin, the economic and social decisions their parents may have made or 
what their sexual orientation is. That is perhaps the worst form of superstition. So, as we get a little bit closer to joining a church, among the things that I've looked for are how do churches handle this distinction? Is the church we're going to join, does it have a good balance here between understanding what faith is or being so caught up in rituals and traditions of some sort that they become a superstition instead? If I were to, well, the thing I've done all along is I've tried to make sure that every single church we visited, at least one of those visits, if there's more than one, is jeans and a t-shirt. That I'm not dressing up in my, you know, wedding or funeral attire to go to these churches. Almost never, as a matter of fact. Because I want to make sure that the dress code isn't being viewed as some sort of ritualistic superstition. And that's an important point. I had a friend who's an elder at a non-denominational church, who at the time that he was promoted into that position or approved into that position, and it was a position that, frankly, based on his his Christian walk and his relationship with the church, was well-earned. But at the time, one of the things that they held up, held back was that, you know, we still have our doubts. We're not sure how this vote's going to go. Because during the summer months, you sometimes wear shorts and a T-shirt. And his answer to that was, well, I wear shorts and a T-shirt intentionally. Because especially during summertime and vacation time, I want to make sure that people who otherwise have never been to our church feel comfortable coming in whatever clothes they happen to have with them at the time, whether vacation clothes or whether just summer clothes. But there were people in that church, including current sitting elders of that church, who felt very strongly, suspiciously strongly, I would say, about a suit and a tie. They were essentially threatening not to vote their approval for him to become one of the elders of the church unless he vowed to change his dress code as a condition of the appointment. And so they had an interesting discussion, what I think was a fantastic discussion, because it was not based on tradition, it wasn't based on ritual, it wasn't based on dress code, it was based on scripture. My friend did what I strive to do. Ask the question of how the point of view you're expressing to me can be construed as biblical. Where in the Bible? Preferably the New Testament. Even more preferably Jesus himself. Where are you finding this rule that says that certain clothes have to be worn in order to be worshipful, in order to be among the faithful? And the person initially didn't have an answer. I think the reason he didn't have an answer because there isn't a good answer. Jesus was delivering his Sermon on the Mount to people who were literally coming as they were. Perhaps people who were just passing by randomly who didn't even realize they were about to hear a sermon. So Jesus doesn't impose a dress code on us, but this individual finally did come up with an answer. And his answer was, I believe, from Romans chapter 14, talking about not letting something that you're comfortable with or that you prefer or that you view as permitted within your faith journey to become a stumbling block for others. My friend turned the tables on him and said, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to make sure that what we wear when we worship is not a stumbling block that stops people who've never been in church before from coming through the door because they don't fit the dress code that you've got in your mind and they don't know that they ever are willing to do so and that what we wear becomes a, an impediment to the faith. And, of course, the person objected to that, tried to turn it back around and say, you know, for other people, faithfulness is all about giving God your best, and giving God your best includes how we've dressed and so forth and so on. But my friend stopped him and said, if what you're telling me is true about what Paul wrote to the church in Rome, you're saying that me wearing shorts, T-shirt, and sandals to church on Sunday is jeopardizing your faith. 
your ability to meet Jesus, your ability to experience the Holy Spirit moving in your life is compromised by what I am wearing. You, not others, but you. And put that other elder in the position of having to say, yes, I'm tempted to walk away from my faith to renounce Christianity because you wore sandals today. Or to say, yeah, I really can't speak on behalf of others. I'm uncomfortable with what you wear. But at no point is my uncomfort with what you're wearing going to jeopardize my faith in any way whatsoever. My faith is going to supersede the superstition that we have to wear the magic clothes and say the magic words to get the magic benefits of being a Christian. And once that kind of revelation was made, then I think the other person backed off and my friend later became an elder. Because the reality is there really isn't anything biblical saying you can't wear sandals to church. In fact, it's almost the punchline of a joke. Because Jesus, theoretically, wore sandals everywhere he went. But that's another example. Is the dress code a form of superstition? Is the type of cross, the color of cross, the size of cross, the size of the altar, what's on top of the altar? Is having two candles instead of one candle going to you know ruin everything? These sorts of ideas. So to me, the answer to the question, to answer it directly, faith can only abide superstition to the extent that superstition doesn't get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. That there's going to be a line where it's perfectly fine. It's no problem for the guy in the three-piece suit to keep wearing his three-piece suit every Sunday. But I draw the line between the two when someone uses their superstition and either doesn't acknowledge where he is on that spectrum, that his views have really nothing to do with the moving of the Holy Spirit and all to do with preference, privilege, and superstition, especially if that individual is trying to impose that superstition notion on everybody else, saying that we can only take communion with, with red grape juice and Jesus crackers versus any other form of grape juice and any other form of bread. That's a serious mistake. That's what I'm rejecting. And I think I'm rejecting because Jesus rejected it too. If you read all the Gospels and look at all the healing accounts of Jesus interacting with people who were broken in some way, whether it's mental illness, often described as evil spirits, whether it's uh, blindness, whether being born blind or struck blind, whether it's leprosy, no matter what it is, the thing you notice is that Jesus delivered healing in lots of different ways. It's almost true that he never healed the same ailment in two different people in the same way, ever. He used a great deal of variety. Did he just say that they were healed? even though they were miles away? Did he touch them with his hands, either to their eyes or to some other part of their body? Did he make a mud pack out of his spit and dirt on the ground and, and cover their eyes and pull the mud pack off? He didn't use the same method, and I believe he didn't, because Jesus didn't ever want us to dip into superstition. He never wanted us to be the kind of people who felt that there was magic in the method rather than faith and intuitive knowledge of God within that relationship. If, and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Jesus, it is through you that we know enough to have faith. Before you, Lord, it was just a bunch of rules and regulations because we didn't have that, re that relationship with you. We didn't have that face-to-face -face moment with you sharing your heart and telling us what you wanted us to do. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the words that we can use
to draw the dividing line between faith and superstition. In fact, Lord, it's almost just the one word you use, Jesus. Love. Is it loving? Is it good? Is it kind? Is it honoring God? Is it making a difference in the life of the other person? And if it's not, Lord, help us. Call to our attention. What is superstition instead? Tell us to put down our bag of bones. Tell us to stop painting our face, dressing in the perfect attire, and doing the right kind of dance, as if we, rather than you, have any control over what's going on providentially in our world. It is in your holy name we pray to you as Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether travel, health, rain, and other hopes should be the primary focus of prayer. Thanks for listening.